You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my delightfully witty podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. How are you doing today, Lisa? Doing great, Carlos. Now I feel the pressure to be witty, though. It's like, ugh. Got to keep you on your toes. Folks, today we're going to be talking about why so many companies are struggling to scale, especially in these current economic times. And I'm really looking forward to discussing this with our guests, the state of today's sales professionals to manage and really close business effectively. So to help us out with that today, we have David Weiss, CRO at the Sales Collective, longtime top sales performer himself and an author of the Sales Tactician's Playbook, which now has a partnering app that he's built called the Deal Doc. So David, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you, Lisa. And I appreciate you all uh, having me on. Excited for the conversation. All right. To get us started and to get our audience to know you a little bit better, David, what is something that you're passionate about that those that only know you through work might be surprised to know about you? What's your inner secret? See, this thing, I don't have any inner secrets. I kind of just put myself out there like all day, every day. Let's see. uh, I'm a big time foodie. I love to travel the world in search of good food. And it's not... Yeah, I've done the Michelin thing and all of that, but finding like the best of a category, like I went on a hunt for dumplings at one point in my life. I love finding really unique foods when I travel and like having like the best of that. It's been a passion. It's led me to some really interesting things and a lot of learning. Not a bad thing to be into. I had some pretty good dumplings in New York City one time, actually. Chinatownism. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So many good things. And actually, you mentioned you're in Houston. So I imagine you're the local expert on barbecue as well. Houston barbecue is good. I'm going to get in a fight with someone. Austin barbecue at Franklin's is technically better. But you know, hey, Houston's got a great food scene though. There's a lot of really, really amazing chefs that are, are starting to move here and open some great restaurants. Oh, awesome. I'll have to get a list of recommendations for you after the show. I'm actually in Houston in two weeks. Theodore Rex by uh, Justin Hughes, the chef. That place is awesome. T-Rex downtown. I'll remember that. That's not a forgettable name. So, David, we could talk about food all day long, and maybe we will, but tell us a little bit about your journey now being CRO at the Sales Collective, co-founder there. It sounds like you've been busy writing books and building apps. So what led you to where you are today? I think a lot of people, journey of, of failure and life lessons and learning. So been in sales for about 20 years. I almost quit our profession 18 years ago. My first job out of college, I was uh, fired almost immediately. My second job out of college, I quit after three months. I was starting to think that sales wasn't right for me. And in those learnings right there, I received tons and tons and tons of product training. And I decided after the second you know, failure that I was going to really try and do this right. And I really wanted to become a student of sales because um, I attributed a lot of my early failure to organizations that really did a great job teaching product, but didn't actually teach you a good job of their art and science. I'm big on science of sales. So 18, 19 years ago, I was sitting in my fraternity house in college, having lost my second job right out of school. And my fraternity brothers are kind of looking at me like I was just going to be the dude that, like, that sleeps on the couch. I was sitting there researching the next company I wanted to work for. And I found this awesome publication um, called Selling Power Magazine. And at the time, 18 years ago, 19 years ago, I applied and two called me back, Clear Channel and Aramark. 
And I took the first job at Aramark and they were, they taught me professional selling. And then I went on to work at three more companies that were on that list, Career Builder, ADP, uh, and Monster, and, and Aramark. And I really learned the art and science of professional selling. And then as I was learning that, I, I literally dug into every book I could possibly find. Re I've read all these different books on sales and it has served me really, really well. So, you know, I went from selling uniforms and formats to advertising, to uh, strategic outsourcing million dollar deals, like literally sitting in the boardroom of Fortune 500 companies, redesigning how they go to market um, from a business perspective. And then I got into sales tech and I worked at a couple, you know, unicorns, the outreaches and the seismics of the world. Uh, and I got to a point in my career where I said, you know what, I've learned a lot and I've helped from the biggest companies in the world down to seed round startups. And I really wanted to start taking all of that and going to market just in helping people uh, with all of that knowledge. So that's where I co-founded the Sales Collective with my good friend, Steve Haru. And we've been, you know, helping organizations, you know, transform their startup motion and scale. Wow. Amazing. So you mentioned it, the product-led sale. My gosh, we've been talking about this a lot lately. Is that still one of the number one things that you're faced with when you're working with clients? I don't know. It's the pitch on the features and functionality. We were just talking about storytelling, and it seems like a lost art in storytelling. It's just we, we pitch on features and functionality. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the companies that I see not as successful scaling their motion. It is very much product-based. They don't know how to create need and, and create need is the, is the word I want to use there because it's they, they can find pain, but they don't know how to actually turn that pain into a must-have, into, into need to change, into need to change now. So it, it's a lot of that. It's also, it goes back to like documentation of the process. So everyone's kind of doing the same thing and approaching it the same way. But yeah, I mean, the, the focus on product versus you know, problem, I think is, is very prevalent. I see you've got a sales DNA test that you do at the Sales Collective. And is that one of the things that you're uncovering is like the people who have, I'm assuming, certain strengths and weaknesses. But is that the output you're giving is like, here's a report on where we feel like you need to do better? Yeah, I mean, it, it's across like 40 something different competencies and it, it directionally will point to that. But it will point to things like you're not consultatively selling. You're not value selling. You're not doing enough uh, discovery. It will point to things like that. And if you don't do good discovery, you don't sell value, you don't, you're not consultative, what are you doing? It's been your follow back product. So David, since you do these tests on competency, and then you also help organizations find and hire great talent, one common belief is that, hey, salespeople are born, that's how they are, that's their personality. And the other thing, oh, no, no, you can learn it. I mean, there's a science of sales and you can get better at this, just like you get better at anything else. What's your belief? My belief is that sales is a profession and like any profession, it can be learned and taught. I hate the opinion that some people have around in order to be great in sales, you have to be an extrovert. You have to be the most gregarious person in the world. I'll tell you right now, some of the biggest W2, like million dollar W2 earners, they're not extroverted at all. They're introverted. They think very, very deeply about the problem they're trying to solve about the customer, they're incredibly thoughtful. They are going to do the deep dive analysis, almost like a forensic accountant would. And I'm not saying like you need to be introverted. I'm saying like it is a skill like any other. And what, regardless of your personality, you can play to your strengths and you can play to the things that make you you and leverage art and science and skill to, to be great. So... If you do this sales DNA thing and you have certain competencies and some that you don't, can they be taught? 
Or is it more like DNA? And hey, this person just doesn't have it. There are some DNA components like the ability to handle rejection, comfortable discussing money. Those are your upbringings. And if you don't handle rejection well, and you're uncomfortable discussing money, you're going to struggle in fast-paced transactional, and you're going to struggle in, in large, complex deals. So there are some things there that, from a DNA component that you're going to need to just deal with. Can it be taught? It's not so much taught as overcome. Like a psychologist or therapist will help you overcome some, you know, childhood trauma. You need to overcome these areas of trauma that have led to these things. But then it will teach you things like the tactical components of hunting and qualifying and discovery and consultatively selling and negotiation, things like that, that it will identify that you can you using skills and learnings you know, improve. The only other component of it is it talks about will and your will to sell. And what I'll say is I almost don't care about everything else. If you don't have the will to fight the good fight every day, to pick yourself up, to do the hard, hard work, because any, and you want to be great at anything. It's hard work. Like, I don't care. Like people say like hustle culture and it's bad. Like, oh, I argue that all day long. Like, I hustled like crazy my first like 10 years. I mean, I was working 60 hours. I earned the right not to hustle. I earned the right to have work-life balance. So I'm not out there saying, you know, go and kill yourself. But I am saying like, you want to be a 1% on something? Every 1% has worked harder and smarter than everyone around them for a very long period of time to earn the right to get to where they are. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. So we talk a lot about basically, you know, having the skill, hill and will, but and then on the hillside, it's basically knowing what your mission is, right? What, what are you asking me to accomplish? But that last part, which really kind of gets into attitude, it's interesting because I don't mean to sound like an old fart, but there's a lot of people that want the life balance now. They don't want to put in the 60 hours. So they don't have the will to be critical thinkers about themselves and where they're lacking and put in the effort and work to get better. And the ones that are, you know, hey, they're hungry. They're great. They're going to slay the market. Unfortunately, I see a lot of the ones that aren't. Yeah, I've been sharing this a little bit online and I, I, I feel like I need to share it more. It's, I really do believe work-life balance is earned. And there's a lot of people who don't hear that. And that's okay. But it is. Because like, to be great at anything, whether it's a 10,000 hour rule that you're going to use or any other, put in more time faster and get better faster. I mean, it's, it's, it's a basic equation. So, I mean, do you want to take longer to be great or shorter to be great? Put in the hours. And do you tap into also, because we, we had a conversation the other day about sales compensation, motivation, what truly motivates people? Because salespeople aren't always coin-operated. I think that's a, a stereotype. That's not the motivation. So it was interesting because we were talking to another guest on the podcast about how they're actually customizing parts of their sales compensation plans to what is motivating to that that rep. So if it is actually like a few more vacation days, then they'll give you a few more vacation days if you hit that target. I mean, a big portion of that being you got to hit the target. But yeah, does your process also take into account the the nuances between what motivates different reps? Absolutely. And, and it will, uh, the sales DNA test will tell you the motivation factor, intrinsic, extrinsic, altruistic, coin operated, world operated, internal operated. And it will absolutely tell you that. And I'm a huge fan of customizing that. But what I'll also say is like, look, you need to be in tune with it regularly with your people because very early on in my career, I was extrinsically motivated. I was coin operated. You pay me more money, I will do, I will do whatever you want. And I was a mercenary and I was okay with that because at that point in my career, my goal was build wealth so I can retire early. 
Once I built a lot of wealth, I then said, okay, I no longer need to be as coin operated. I want to do it for the love of the game. I want to do it so I can help my, I can spend more time with my family. I want to do it because I want to help the next generation of sellers be better than I was and that what I see out there. So people's motivations change. So like my recommendation is look at it when you're hiring them and, and customize them. Also have the conversation often, like at least every year, so you can adjust the gold sticks to match what people want. And I've got to ask too, because part of that motivation piece, like, do you ever end up giving the recommendations that this is not the right person for this role and they should be moved into a different role? Not necessarily like cut and lo- cut your losses, but people just because they're not meant for sales, maybe they're great at something else. Like, do you give those recommendations to your clients as well? Absolutely. I mean. I never like disrupting someone's life. I frankly do everything I can to not do that. And that's training them. That's talking with them and understanding where they're a better fit. There are some people, like I, I say that people quit on me before I quit on them. And, and that's that's vast majority of the truth. But typically when organizations bring me in, it's not all rosy. They bring me in the solid. And the problem is often their people or their process or, or some other related factor to their approach. So there, it is very often that we will make recommendations that there needs to be some level of adjustment or, or training, but so there needs to be some change has to happen. Yeah. Part of that is there, there needs to be consequences for poor performance. And I think some organizations really struggle with it. They set expectations, but they're not willing to follow through. And then mediocrity is acceptable. And here's where I'll challenge. There should be consequences for poor performance. And it should start with the freaking leadership. Yeah. And here's what I mean by that. You've trained enabled, coached, supported, armed, um, and with your seller and put in all the energy, peace. You've done your part. If you haven't done those things, start there, do those things, see what happens. I bet that person rises to the occasion because now you're giving them what they need to be successful. But if you've done your part and they're not doing theirs, now I agree there's consequences. Yeah, I just ran a kind of a series of coaching classes and just to give you two different spectrums, one of the frontline managers was like, hey, this was great. I can clearly see where I can make a difference with my team. Another example of a spectrum, different leader. This was really good. I could see how this might help them. Now it all comes down if they're actually going to do it. And I go, you've totally missed the part of your own accountability and ownership for whatever they do do. If they suck, that's on you. And if they're great, it's sort on you. The leaders are for all the failure and the people are responsible for all the success. It is lost on some leaders. And that's what I mean about, I'm with you about, you know, there need to be consequences for these folks. And the consequences isn't, uh, not to be, you know, misunderstood. It isn't just fire people. It's hard enough to get them and train them. But are we doing everything like you just mentioned before to get them there? So your organization's doing everything from doing a test to kind of see what their competencies are, finding and hiring the right people, and helping them out with the processes. When we go back to this topic about why organizations struggle to effectively scale, David, what are some of the reasons that are really impacting that? Some of the most common, it really really is often a people or process equation. It's people, process, and honestly, product market fit or lack thereof. Those three. If you've got the right people. And that's what we try and do. We try and assess the team, align the right people to the right roles, hire them the right people to close gaps, use the sales DNA assessment to find you the right people. And we have our own recruiting team that puts people through steps. We also do something that's really different. We actually include in our recruiting process, 90 days of onboarding. So when we hire someone, we will train and coach them. Amazing. More successful, faster onboarding. When you train and coach a people, it's shocking. 
then we'll build your process. And when we say build process, like from literally define, helping you define your ICP, the strategy to hunt, to all the way to close, every single step, every stage, every deep dive, we spend like 50 hours with our clients, like giving them like writing and pressure testing and, and coaching and guiding and, and them providing them a playbook that they could hire, hand to someone saying, do this and you'll be successful. And then, you know, we're doing, you know, coaching and training after the fact. Those are kind of the key things that we help with. What I often look at very early on in an engagement is if I do all those things, will you still, will you be successful? And that's then comes down to is idea market fit, is a product market fit? Do you have the right leadership in place uh, that if we do all these things and actually take it successfully, uh, I'll, we'll, we'll look at some of that stuff and we'll walk away if, if things are a good fit or we'll make recommendations. Yeah, I wanted to circle back to something you were saying about leadership, and you just mentioned it, that you also do analyze leadership, because I think something that we see a lot is people who are put into leadership roles, A, maybe because they think they want them, but it's it's just a promotion step. And we all know that not everyone's cut out to be a good leader, that they really shouldn't be anything other than an individual contributor. So when it comes to, because you know the story Carlos was referencing, one of the leaders actually said to us, so how do we reinforce this? And I was like, well, you be a leader. <laughs> it just seemed like such an obvious question to me. It's like, well, you do coaching and you do role play and you practice and you enable and you don't stop doing those things until people are, are more comfortable and confident. So the question threw me because it seemed so obvious, but not everybody is cut out to be a leader. So in the case where you're analyzing, do they have those right leaders in place? Is that something that the sales collective can help them with? You mentioned you have some fractional CROs. Is that where you might recommend a bridge between what they have now and, and hiring somebody internally for themselves? Yeah, we'll, we'll assess their leaders and we'll also do leadership training. And if they don't have leaders in place, then yeah, we've got fractional frontline managers as well as um, fractional chief revenue officer. We're also looking for the capacity and the will to lead people versus manage that. We've had engagements fail where we did all the right things and then the people in charge just didn't follow the things that we built. Like we built the house and they didn't want to live in it. Why did you have me build your house? So that's kind of the other part of it is we look to see if people are going to actually like take our coaching and, and be coachable along the way because otherwise the outcome just won't be there. You know, it's interesting you say that because, and I forgot where I pulled it from, but I was looking at some research about seven, and what I lay out for folks is 70, 80% of your success after we train your folks and, and run the, the reinforcement on the back end is on you, the leaders. People are going to do what you inspect and expect on a daily basis. If this isn't important to you, guess what? It's not important to them. And just like your compensation drives behavior, the daily questions that you ask around a deal and around your process, they also you know, drive results. They drive behaviors. Kind of like say, like if you have a your sales culture, you're the tip of the spear because you're the leadership in this organization. And there are so many, I mean, it kind of goes back to this. There's training out there to be a better salesperson. There's not a lot of training out there or investment in making those frontline, second line, third line managers actually be managers and leaders. And some organizations do better than others. I've had enablement professionals ask me that exact question. David, I can't get my frontline leaders to do A, B, C, D, E. They won't ask the questions. They won't do the coaching. They won't do this. They won't do that. The people don't show up to deal reviews properly, all those things. I'm like, cool. Stop trying to get the frontline leaders to do those things. And they're like, what do you need? I'm like, go to the CEO, 
go to the CRO and ask them to ask the questions to the frontline leader repeatedly in their ones. And if you get them to do that, quit because nothing will ever change. I try to get them, I go, hey, here are the six questions I ask on every deal. And each one, you can go a mile deep. These are mine. What do y'all think at your tables? Come up with your five, six, seven questions. But once you leave here, we all agree. These are your six questions that you will ask on every single deal. And getting them to commit and stick to that commitment. It's a lot of reasons why we do these management checkpoints over time to hold their feet to the fire. But hey, it's up to them. You know, they have to make the commitment and see value in it. And if not, you know, sometimes it's like, I, ha- I got this going on and that going on. I get it. But it's, it's driving them. Whatever your boss asks you is what you, is what you do. So, I mean, if it, Neo says, hey, I, I want these six, every time you, the VP, SVP, whatever you are, walk into a meeting with me and talk about deals, I want to know the answer to these six questions. You know what they're going to do? They're going to go ask their people those six questions and it's going to go downhill. And if they don't ask those six questions, Whatever that CEO wants is the question is what's going to happen all the way down. Well, I got to pivot a little bit here because I'm really curious about your app. So you've got the sales tacticians playbook, obviously the book you wrote. And then now you mentioned you've got the deal doc app. So what does the app do? What is it helping to do? Tell us a little bit about it. To take a step back, the problem I'm trying to solve, like one of the things that I, I consistently see with sellers is that let's talk about level of maturity of an organization. The most immature organizations do not have a sales process. In other words, they don't have stages. They don't have the defined actions. Cool. If you've got stages and defined actions, you're ready for training. Because now I can train you on how to properly execute the stages and the defined actions. If you don't have those, training doesn't work. So cool. You have stages, defined actions. You have training. Training is how you sell. One of the biggest struggles I see with many sellers these days is they struggle in identifying where they missed things in their how they sell motion. And that's what I'm trying to solve because there's a lot of sales training out there and I'm friends with a lot of the people that do it. And I've been trained on every methodology from, you know, Acklebus and Challenger and and Miller Hyman and and Gap and Spin and Corporate Visions and Challenger Consensus and there are all their variations and Jolt. And I've been trained on all of them. They actually don't move the needle in my opinion, because what happens is salespeople go they take nuggets from those things and then they go about how they sell and they don't take the time to think critically about their deal and say to themselves, cool, I just left this meeting or I'm prepping for this meeting. What do I not know? What do I need to do to move the deal? And they miss that critical inspection of the, how they're selling motion inside each deal And so that's what I have spent a lot of time in the last handful of years, kind of carving out a niche and a brand for myself, things, because that's what I think is the missing piece that the missing piece right now is a lot of people have a process, but they don't take the time to actually think about the deal they're in right now and what they need to do. So my app is built around that. It asks you, Carlos, you've got six questions. My app has 90 and each of them is broken down in chunks of critical components of deals. Like the business case and who the economic buyer is and are they involved and what's the criteria to make decisions and what's the process to make decisions and the implication of pain and do I have champions inside the deal defined correctly and am I competitively differentiated like things like that 
and it breaks down each of those components for you. So it asks the questions, breaks down the components, and then color codes your deal. And we'll say, hey, based on the deal you're working right now in these areas of, of points of, of failure, here's how complete you are, red, yellow, green. So you can know, oh, I am good. I've got champions and an economic buyer aligned, but I'm red on my business case. I need to spend time, look at their deal and choose the points of focus to progress their deal. So then I got to ask the million dollar question. How are you tackling getting salespeople to use another technology? Because we hear all the time that they're, they barely put notes in CRM, that they're not using any other enablement technologies the way that they should be. So what's the key here to getting them to use and answer all 90 questions? What's really cool is I, I built the, the UI UX so you can get through all 90 questions. So it does move really, really fast and I designed it that way. And the questions are really easy, like yes, no answer. So like it, it moves fast. But to your point, it is hard to get people to do that. It's one of the things I talk about every single day is if you want to be great at something, you do have to do a little bit more effort and you do need to do the hard work. Yes, it's a challenge, but I've got a few hundred users right now. I'd love to have a lot more. I just launched Android like a week ago. So like it's just growing. And then I created the book to go along with it. So when you see the gap, and then it's a pure playbook. It's literally 80 plays. It's 140 pages long, no stories, no fluff. I don't even have transitions. You're in this area, here are the eight different strategic, very high tactical plays you can run to, to move the needle. Like one of them in there is, I call it faces of the problem. So a lot of people struggle to get their deals prioritized, right? And especially when they get to the executives, executives just like kick it down. So the faces of the problem play, really simple. Go have lots of conversations. Interview them and ask them the same four to five questions around the current state, the desired future state, the metrics that are happening today, what they would like in a future state solution, the challenges that, that they're experiencing with what's going on today, mini business case stuff. And then like talk to 10, 15, 20 end users, put their face and quotes from them on a slide, and then use that and their data to build your business case. And along with the business case and along with all of those people, submit that to the executive team. Now the executive team knows, oh, this isn't just one of my functional people asking for another toy. There's a real problem out in the field that's negatively impacting my people and a real business case to solve it. That's just like one example. I've got like 79, just like that. Lisa and I do a lot of it in our consulting business about trying to get folks to understand the gaps in their deal. Try to find the reasons why it's not going to close, not the 30 reasons why you think it is. Now, you mentioned critical thinking earlier, and I think that is a gap with some young sales professionals. You ask me all these questions. Do you have a business case? Sure. I mean, I'm not going to say no. Do you have a champion? Of course. I talked to the guy twice. So where do we get to the part where we, someone actually goes in and reviews some of this to course correct, to get them to see the reality behind it versus creating a fictional story of what they think their manager wants to hear? Yeah. And that's why I've got 90 questions because the business case has like eight right there. When I'm talking about business case, I'm like, do you establish metrics? Do they tie to executive priorities? Has your champion blessed them when your champion is defined as someone with access to power that's selling for you new out there? Does the business case elevate to a level of a need to do now based on a dollar figure tied to priority? It's all the, the peel the onion on getting to a point of, you say you have a business case, let's pressure test how great it is and how complete your thought is around it. And then I built a deal room into it so they can share it with their leader. And then the leader can see the deal, they can see the color coding. I think it's so critical for those managers to dive deeper into at least strategic deals of the information they're getting. 
I've heard you say manage deals, not just sell them. And I love the statement, but before I jump in assuming what, I, what you meant, what does that mean to you? To me, that, that is that third carve out, process, training, deal management. You need all three. And I would fight anybody that that is why you are failing right now. Why your business can't scale, why you aren't closing deals fast enough, why you as a salesperson are hitting your goals. It's because you aren't managing deals. All you're doing is going through the sales stage motion. You're, you're trying to sell a deal literally. Oh, I did discovery. Now I present the solution on that proposal, right? No, you're not going in circles. You're not building, you know, uh, enough end users. You're not building enough, you know, broad paint. You're not aligning it to the right executives. You're not getting the correct executive sponsorship. You're not building the business case for change. You're following a process and a loose framework of training that the company's asked you to do. You are not thinking critically and managing the deal. That is what I mean by deal management. I think that's the missing piece. Honestly, it was the missing piece for me. I remember how I mentioned I've been trained by, you know, four or five of the companies on the best companies to sell for, and I've read every single book. I still was a run rate 300K a year seller. When I learned how to manage deals, six, seven, 800K, million dollar W2s, never from that point went below 500K annually in earnings. Like once I learned how to manage deals, 2X income predictably, that's the difference for people. Well, there you go, folks. That's how you're going to get there. Uh, we typically ask a few questions at the end of each podcast, but I'm going to change this one because I'm really curious about your opinion because you're working with a lot of companies at different stages. And something Carlos and I are hearing more, mostly because of the rise of AI tools, is that the BDR, SDR prospecting function is going to go away. What are you hearing in the market and what do you think? I've got two what I think are pretty crystallized thoughts on this. One, I'm a big fan of full life cycle AE. The reason why I'm a big fan of full life cycle AE is because I, I genuinely believe account executives have lost their ability to hunt. And hunting is the only thing that you can 100% control. You can de-risk the deal you're working using proper deal management, but you're still reliant on someone else to make a decision. The only thing you can control literally is your outputs that then lead to things happening. So when you literally transfer the responsibility to somebody else, you are essentially saying, I am giving up one of the major drivers of quota team. That's why I believe in full life cycle ladies. Now, when it comes to, and by the way, the partial thing, like, well, it make them in, in charge of half the pipe, 50% there, the other 50% here. No, because they're still going to freaking blame why half of it didn't happen. Okay. 100% ownership of you, SDRs, BDRs, partners, communities, all the other things. You layer all of those on top. That's how you get to 150, 200% of the Now, uh, the SCR, BDR motion. The SCR, BDR motion is not dead. Google did a very nice job last week of putting a very big stake in it. And what the stake they put on it is the mispractice of email. And unfortunately, the mispractice of email, which is highly prevalent, Thankfully and unthankfully, depending on, you know, white space coverage opinions, um, I'm a fan of white space coverage and emails are a cheap way to do it, is going to be minimized or go away. So what that means, the BDR, SDR motion, heavy on the phone. You're, we are going to need to go back to the 50 to 100 calls to replace email. It sucks. And anybody listening, I'm sorry, but that's the reality. I do foresee the BDR, SDR motion to be rolling now under marketing. Because what that motion is now going to flow is more content driven, 
what I think it's going to be more strategic gifting driven, what I think it's going to be more event driven. And I think it's going to be a lot of, you know, following up on intense signals that are happening in the world and phone calls. So I don't think it's dead, but I think it's going to need to evolve very fast. And I mean, like, if you're not planning it right now, you're behind because February next year is when it needs to be fully baked in your organization. We're with you, David. It's going to be an interesting journey and that's, it keeps uh, our jobs kind of fun too. All right. Last question of the day, we call it Acceleration Insights. What's that one little nugget piece of information, advice, be it business or personal, that David, you would share with our listeners that would help them be as successful as you are? I still have a long journey to be as successful as I want to be. But let's say that as a frame, treat your profession as if you are a professional athlete. Watch the game film, have the mentors, put in the hard work, practice even though you're already great. And if you're not as great as you want to be, practice even harder. Love it. David, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you and learn more about the great work you're doing, what's your preferred method of communication? Oh, LinkedIn. That's why most of your your cast on my own. I post on LinkedIn every single day. I respond to any halfway decent message. So no, reach out to me. Like I get out of bed every day to help salespeople be better salespeople. Amazing. Well, David, cannot thank you enough for spending time with us today. We know how valuable it is, and we really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you all. Appreciate it as well. Great conversation. All right, everyone. That does it for this episode. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share this episode with your family, your friends, your kids, your dogs, and subscribe through YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, pretty much anywhere you can listen to your podcast. And if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and throw us a five-star review on iTunes. I am Lisa Schneer. I'm joined by my never boring podcast partner, Carlos Noche. And until the next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.